Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello, my name is Jay Burbank and welcome to this episode of the LawPod. Today I'm joined by lecturer Claire Patton who focuses on cause-related marketing in CSR. Hi Claire. Hi Jay, thanks for having me. So Claire, um, your specific area of research, um, cause-related marketing, would you like to wind back the clock for us and maybe talk about sort of the broader context of what maybe CSR is and what cause-related marketing is specifically? Okay, thanks Jay. So with corporate social responsibility, that is when a corporation want to be seen to do good in their, communi- in their community. That can be at a local level or a global level. And there are lots of different ways that a corporation can do that. So they may get involved with some sort of wildlife protection um, scheme. They may decide to um, go green to, um, to save energy. They may decide to get involved with a humanitarian crisis or they may decide to get involved with a cause. And that's my area of research so it's cause related marketing so the cause in cause related marketing is the actual cause that the corporation want to raise awareness of and raise funds for how this normally works is that a non-profit organization will partner up with a for-profit organization and then they work together to raise awareness of and funds for a particular cause so this can be something like um diabetes or it could be um heart um, heart issues. It can be to raise awareness of global warming. So it can be any cause that would capture the imagination of the stakeholders involved for the company. So the particular issues that I'm interested in um, is uh, breast cancer that I researched for my PhD and also I've moved on to looking at um, breastfeeding. So breast milk substitution and um, cause related marketing as well. And these corporations that um, are partnering with um, non-profits in cause-related issues, um, do you find that they will um, adapt their campaign based on cultural sensitivities if it's international and cross-jurisdictional? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Jay. Um, So with my research, what, um, what I found is that Whenever we look at what corporations would have been interested in um, years ago and how corporations acted before we had um, the internet, essentially, and before the world became a much smaller place and um, globalization and so on, the corporations could tailor how they acted with their stakeholders and how they presented the corporate image. They could tailor that um, in each jurisdiction and they could sort of localize that. So, for example, if a corporation um, have an operation in the Middle East, then they can tailor their um, their image, if you like, to be maybe more socially conservative. Um, that same corporation can then tailor their image in more liberal countries to be more um, forward thinking, maybe whenever we're looking at women's rights, etc. Whereas with globalization and the advancement of IT technology, Corporations can't do that to the same degree. So, for example, two companies that fell victim to that are Starbucks and IKEA. 
So both would be seen in many countries, especially in the global north, as being progressive liberal companies um, who would advocate women's rights, etc. Um, but po- both countries in, or both companies rather, in Saudi Arabia, um, with Starbucks, they had um, a sign up that said that no women were allowed. I think the backstory to that was that women and men were normally segregated within the cafe, and that this dividing wall had somehow come down, and so they had, um, they had put up a sign then that said that that no women were allowed into the cafe because they couldn't segregate them. Now, whenever um, Twitter found out about this, a hashtag um, began trending, and this was very damaging to um, Starbucks brand. And then also with IKEA, um, again, a a very um, liberal, forward-thinking company um, and actually on their website within their corporate social responsibility pages, they have a section dedicated to their work on the advancement of women's education in developing economies. And uh, I think it was one of IKEA's subsidiaries had actually airbrushed out women in all of the catalogues. So... For a start, it just looked very odd because it was just all men and boys in a homeware catalogue. And, you know, so in the Western versions of these catalogues, there would be a mum, a dad and a child brushing their teeth. But in this version of it, the mum was airbrushed out. So it was just the father and son. But anyway, um, so they had done this. uh, And again, um, whenever social media found out about this, it began trending and IKEA had to come out and apologise and explain why they had done this. So these examples are quite important because they show that there is no hiding place for corporations. So the type of corporation that I'm interested in researching is multinational corporations, MNCs. So these are companies that have operations throughout the globe. So these companies, um, whenever they get involved in a cause-related marketing campaign, they have to be very aware of what will translate and how um, this is going to translate across not just um, geographical borders, but political borders, social borders and cultural borders. So this, these watchful consumers um, that are taken to Twitter and, and these um, instances of sort of outrage um, when actions are committed by these MNCs in another jurisdiction that they wouldn't perhaps commit in um, a more liberal Western jurisdiction. Um, do, do you see, and uh, specifically um, in your research, you've, you've written on the Think Pink campaign. Do you mm-hmm. see that as an example where perhaps these watchful consumers haven't been um, as in tune with what's been going on? And obviously that could lead into more discussion about um, what the Think Pink campaign is and what you wrote on it. Yeah, this yeah, that's another really interesting point actually. Um, so with my research, I look at breast cancer cause related marketing, or that is what I did for my PhD. Um, so I looked at four corporations. I looked at Asda, Avon, Debenhams, and MS. So these are all UK based companies, but they're all multinational corporations. So I looked at their campaigns um, in the United Kingdom the breast cancer cause related marketing campaigns that they have in the United Kingdom. So whenever you're talking about watchful consumers, that is, it's, it is really interesting. And I wouldn't say that consumers generally have not copped to what's happened with the pink ribbon campaign. They have, but I think that the pink ribbon campaign has become so embedded in our culture that, um, people accept it without really thinking about what goes on behind it. But in the last um, 
sort of five to ten years, there's been quite a large movement against the corporatization of breast cancer. And so now there's a tension between the two. And without maybe wanting to skip too far ahead um, with with everything, um, I, I suppose, in relation to my research, I do think that the, the breast cancer cause-related marketing, the pink ribbon, and everything um, surrounding that has started to lose its appeal and has started to lose its popularity. And it is due to social media and, um, uh, you know, um, people communicating and realising that the the corporate motive maybe isn't always as altruistic as what might first appear upon first blush. Why do you think there hasn't been that same sort of, you know, fast backlash, you know, with a, a Twitter hashtag that has sort of exploded overnight as there would be with issues like in Saudi Arabia, women being segregated? And do you think it's more of a difficult issue in in the West? Like, is it a difficult issue within our culture that we can't reconcile these two competing forces? One, you know, the market... Um, promoting a campaign and obviously benefiting from it with the profit incentive. And mm. on the other hand, the wish and need to be altruistic and to support these non-profit campaigns. Like, what is it about our culture that um, can't reconcile these two being put together in the Think Pink campaign? Well, I think with breast cancer, the the reason that there hasn't been an explosion or a backlash is because the the heavy lifting of the campaign, the heavy lifting of the campaign was done during the 70s and the 80s, long, long before um, we had the internet. Then whenever, so originally breast cancer was something that women didn't talk about. Women were diagnosed with breast cancer, they lived through breast cancer and they died through breast cancer or they died of breast cancer without ever telling most of their family and their friends exactly what was wrong with them. They had some sort of unspoken female disease. Certainly up until the 70s, that would have been the case. And then there was with the um, with sort of, I suppose it was second wave feminism that really pushed um pushed women to start talking about breast cancer. And they started um, demonstrating in the streets and they started demanding proper health care. And there was a woman called Charlotte Healy in the 1990s and she came up with the idea of a little salmon coloured ribbon and she attached this to a card and she had had written on it, um, she had detailed on it the funds that were allocated to cancer research and she started giving these out to her family and friends to raise awareness of breast cancer. Now, Estee Lauder, the cosmetics um, company, and Self magazine, around the same time, they started to have a look at this um, breast cancer cause, if you like, and they started to have a think about this and thought, you know what, this would fit quite well with our brand. It's um, a female-driven cause. Our consumers, our readers are female. So they approached Haley about using her ribbon and she was obviously a very wise and insightful woman because she could see, um, even though cause-related marketing would have been in its infancy back then, she could see that if she gave up her ribbon, that the, um, the point, the objective 
could get lost within the whole corporatization of the ribbon. And so she refused and she said no, that she didn't want her ribbon um, to be used. So Estee Lauder and Self magazine went away and they had a think and they had a chat and they spoke um, to their lawyers and they realised that all they had to do was change the colour of the ribbon and they could use it because obviously the ribbon isn't copyright, copyrighted. And so they changed it to pink. Um, and then I suppose you could say that the rest is history. So in the 90s, this um, cosmetics company and this women's magazine sort of gave birth to the breast cancer movement. And then you have a, comp- or a charity called Susan G. Komen in America and they came along and then they really lifted it to sort of superstar cult level and um, the breast cancer movement. So to answer your question about why... Um, there hasn't been this explosion or a backlash against breast cancer. It's because breast cancer cause-related marketing grew up in the 1990s before we had um, the power of social media and before we had the power of Twitter. And it became so popular and so ingrained in our culture that most people don't think about it whenever they see this little obligatory pink ribbon and they see it all over um goods and products, especially around um, October, whenever that's um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I know that whenever I started my PhD and I started researching into this, um, maybe a few years before that, I had a little pin on my bag, little pink ribbon pin on my bag, and most of my family and friends did. It was just something that we just honestly, genuinely never really thought about. There is, there's a a group based in San Francisco called um, Breast Cancer Action, And they push back very, very strongly against the corporatization of breast cancer. And there are lots of individuals, there are lots of blogs, there's lots of literature out there um, that that pushes back against breast cancer. But breast cancer cause-related marketing has grown into an industry of its own, a very powerful and a very wealthy one. Um, So it's very difficult to take it on. For example, the pink ribbon itself, I would argue, has become a logo that is as recognisable as the McDonald's arches or the Nike swoosh. Um, So it's become a symbol that is very recognisable in our society and in our culture. So it's very difficult to tackle that and take that on. And um, I suppose this is more of a this is more of a difficult um, point morally, I suppose, but that that brand recognition of the pink ribbon and that association with other corporate brands, is that inherently a bad thing? Or can you see any positives with it being this instantly recognisable brand for for the charities that maybe affiliate themselves with it, either officially or unofficially? So are you asking me, do I have a problem with pink ribbon from the charity side or a problem with the I, I mean, um, from do you have a problem with, with the sort of I suppose um, from a CSR context the, mm. the mutual benefit and the mutual gain perhaps of mm-hmm. yes companies profiting but at the same time a lot of money being raised for charitable causes yeah I think well you're right when you say a lot of money is raised where the money goes and how good what good the money does is where I have a bit of an issue um, whenever, you know, from carrying out the research. So there are, I suppose there are a couple of things to think about. First off, 
breast cancer cause related marketing. So we've got breast cancer in the title of that. So whenever we're looking at breast cancer cause related marketing, we need to remember that these are real women who've been diagnosed with a disease that at best is going to be really horrific for a year, 18 months, maybe two years while they undergo chemotherapy. Um, radiotherapy, um, maybe an operation, etc., to try to um, to recover from this. Um, sort of sitting in the middle ground is where a woman is facing um, losing maybe one breast or both of her breasts and facing the dilemma as to whether or not she has reconstructive surgery, etc. And there are lots of offshoots of problems with that as well. And not just from the cosmetic side of it, but also um, if you've got a young woman, she's not going to be able to breastfeed. So you've got um, lots of other issues that come from that. And then, of course, we've got the, um, the worst outcome of all, which is when a woman will develop stage four breast cancer and she's ultimately going to die from the disease. So I think that that's where we always need to sort of circle the conversation back and rem remember that we're talking about real women who ha who are suffering from a disease that may ultimately take their lives. And if it doesn't take their lives, it could certainly maim them. I believe through my research that corporations have taken over. So there's been a corporate takeover of the disease of breast cancer. So the loudest voice in the breast cancer narrative no longer belongs to women with breast cancer. The loudest voice in the breast cancer narrative now belongs to the corporations. And what they have been able to do is they have been able to shape the social role of women with breast cancer because of the power that they now have um, within the breast cancer narrative. And that's where my issue is. Yeah. And then there are lots of other things that that, that we can have a think about where where exactly the money goes and um, if there are so many billions of dollars raised why are we no closer to a cure yeah. why are figured you know breast and, cancer and to take it back to your research that's that's what i was going to lead into um so you talked about the narrative being shaped by corporations um of breast cancer um can you talk a, a little bit about that and what that means for breast cancer yeah, so in my research, um, I mined the corporate websites of four corporations who engage with breast cancer cause related marketing campaigns in the UK. So that is Asda, Avon, Debnams and MS. And what came out of that is um, a very specific typology of the ideal woman with breast cancer. So this woman will be um, heteronormative leaning, so that would be um, a heterosexual woman. She will be a mother or a grandmother in a nuclear family. She will be very positive in her outlook. Um, and with positive, the consequences of that is that she will never kind of question her diagnosis um, or rarely question her diagnosis or even sort of say, well, why me? Um, you know, so um, and the consequences that can follow on from that are that um she is much less likely, and research has, has backed this up, she's much less likely to question doctors about her treatment, etc. as well. Um, and so there's a quietening of that whole conversation around, around breast cancer rates and why is um, breast, cancer breast cancer diagnosis continuing to rise and why is it that young women who get breast cancer are more likely to get an aggressive form of breast cancer, etc. And then another, um, another typology that comes through is this infantile behaviour. 
So, for example, whenever we look at breast cancer cause related marketing campaigns, particularly from those companies that would be quite heavily involved in the US market, um, we can see that, uh, you know, that it is very infantile in its approach. So if you look at the Tickled Pink campaign run by Asda, I mean, even the name of that Tickled Pink sounds like a, you know, a childhood game. So we've got this Tickled Pink campaign and these um the fundraising activities will happen in store in the Asda stores and it's, you know, feather boas and games of pass the parcel and cake bake sales. Um, and it's a very, it's almost a carnival atmosphere. And f- as part of my research, um, it was just a very, very small thing that I did, but I, I googled little girl's birthday party and I googled the tickled pink um as this tickle pink campaign and the images were so similar you know you're looking at a table in asda that's got pink balloons and feather boas and everybody's laughing and playing games and you've got cakes and everything but then you look at the little girl's birthday party and it's they're very very similar images and by infantilizing women with breast cancer you're downplaying the seriousness of their illness so back to earlier whenever I was talking about the actual lived experience of a woman with breast cancer and she's facing um, you know horrific treatment ahead she's facing losing a breast or both breasts or potentially dying from this disease if the narrative that the corporations are building is that you know we're going to be positive we're going to beat this then it's putting an awful pressure on women with breast cancer to behave in a certain way and so in my research, I call this the social role, the breast cancer social role. And it's an expectation that I suppose generally we as a society place on women with breast cancer. And that expectation um, isn't placed on people with with other diseases. Um, so a little thing that you can do is, again, is, is go into Google and and Google um you know, lung cancer or liver cancer or, or any of those other prostate cancer. And then if you Google breast cancer, you see the difference that will come up. You know, you'll see lots of of um, almost fluffy images that come up for, for breast cancer and that trivialises the disease relative to other diseases. And so that's what I mean about that there's been this corporate takeover of breast cancer. And then the trivialization of the disease itself. Do you think that's basically them sanitizing the disease and making it almost um, consumable to a particular market? You know, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. Um, yeah. Death does not sell. You know, we, we don't want to to walk into Asda and think about people dying. So, um, of course, we've got to have this very optimistic and very positive um, narrative built around it. So, for example. The year that I was doing my research um, and I was mining the data on MS's website for their breast cancer campaign, they had seven women um, giving their personal accounts of their of their um, breast cancer experience. And out of the seven women, only one of those women had a terminal form of breast cancer. But she didn't speak about dying in her blurb. Um, and it was all very positive. And her name was Mandy and she was 26 whenever she gave the interview and she spoke about all, you know, the silver lining of getting this disease is that I now appreciate life, etc., etc. And that always stuck, stuck with me because, you know, there was no sadness or feeling sorry 
or anything. And that's okay because um, this, this, whenever Mandy was giving the interview, she has the right to own her own experience. Of course she does. But whenever Marks and Spencer are doing these interviews for these women, it's a little bit like what we're doing right here now. You know, you're setting up a question and I'm answering it. And so if these questions are set up in a certain way, then you only have, you know, a certain way to respond to them. And then obviously um, Marks and Spencer can go away and edit and snip and frame this conversation and present it in a certain way. And so as a woman who's been diagnosed with breast cancer, if she goes on to Google and she is searching, say, for example, for post-mastectomy underwear and she and she is brought to Marks and Spencer's website and then she sees this on their website and she sees these seven women and these are these seven women are all very um, optimistic and positive about their diagnosis. This is reinforcing the message that this is how this woman is supposed to act as well. So it becomes internalized. So she is thinking, well, you know, everybody else is dealing so well with their diagnosis. What's wrong with me? I need to to be positive and I need to say, well, you know, the good thing that's come out of this breast cancer is that I now really appreciate everybody in my life. And that's not fair because it's not an expectation that we place on other um people on other individuals with with other cancers um obviously we've already discussed that um there there are certain levels of consumer accountability perhaps in other csr campaigns and even in the think pink campaign with its decreasing popularity mm. and obviously because it was a legacy um of pre, the pre-internet era there hasn't been that accountability but just on and and obviously i don't want to take too far from the topic but just on government and what the, the public sector um, are doing to hold these corporations to account if um, perhaps money raised isn't being used appropriately or, you know, um, if there is sort of this hijacking, if you like, um, by corporations. what uh, Is there anything you'd like to say on that or just sort of broadly um, about what in particular Western governments are, are doing on that? So... With cause-related marketing there and CSR more generally, um, there's always a tension between regulation and a sort of a free movement um, or flexibility or freedom for corporations to be able to get involved in campaigns without restricting them too much. Because the argument against over-regulation in this area is that if you over-regulate, then corporations will simply find a different way um, to get involved uh, they'll say, look, this has become too difficult for us, so we're just going to move on and find something else. And then you're left with charities maybe losing one of their, you know, their their big sponsors, their big partners. The other problem then is if you under-regulate it, you leave the um, non-profit organisations in a, a weaker or a more vulnerable position whenever they're trying to negotiate. So... Where I am sort of going with my current research and don't probe me too much on this because it is work in progress, but where I'm going at the minute is a middle ground. So it's not really hard law, although there are some aspects within the Charity Act 1992 that we could look at at maybe tightening up with corporate partnerships or commercial partnerships. But where I am going um, with the paper that I'm writing at the minute 
is more soft law regulation. So it's about tightening up the... Um, there's, there is already a fundraising regulation. Um, so there's the fundraiser fundraising um, regulator website and within that there is a code um, of conduct that corporations are supposed to adhere to. Um, but where I want to go is to tighten up in that. And so one of the issues that I'm really interested in and where I've sort of, um, I wouldn't say moved on from breast cancer, but I've maybe um, broadened my scope a little to bring breastfeeding um, into it, is I'm quite interested in corporations where there is a tension between their cause-related marketing campaigns and their actual activities. So if we look at a company like um, Nestle, who are who who manufacture breast milk substitutes, so formula, and they push that quite heavily in developing economies like the Philippines, and that can lead to women not breastfeeding um, their babies, and then there's obviously a whole host of problems that that are that, that's attached to that. But then you look on Nestle's website, and they actually have written on their website. Um, helping 50 million children to lead healthier lives. And you're sort of going, uh, no, you're not, actually. <laughs> you know, you're you're contributing to infant mortality in developing economies. So where, where I'm stuck at the minute um, with my research is I want to, to stop that tension. So I want to sort of say, okay, you, company, can't get involved in this cause-related marketing campaign if it conflicts with the actual activity that your company is doing. So again, going back to the breast cancer, if you're a cosmetics company and you use carcinogenic materials in your cosmetics, so you're over here on one hand using your carcinogenic material, then you can't pop up on the other hand and say, you know, we're, we're working towards eradicating breast cancer because you could be one of the causes of breast cancer. So it's so this is what I'm figuring out in the early hours of the morning whenever I'm sitting typing and tapping away is where we um, yeah we relieve that tension between where corporations are using their cause-related marketing campaigns to mask activities that sort of um, go on behind the scenes and maybe close that legitimacy gap. And do you think there is um, sort of a taboo, at least in the Western democracies, um, against the very idea of regulating a charity or a charitable cause or a cause which on the face of it is charitable, but if you, obviously if you dig a little deeper, is part of a broader cause-related campaign, which is causing corporations to profit? Um, do, you, do you think there's a sort of there's um sort of a, a moral struggle going on there um you said yourself that you're looking more at soft law mm. um soft law regulation perhaps from a practical perspective of you don't want these corporations to just stop doing it all together obviously but do you think also there's there are cultural reasons perhaps moral reasons why western democracies wouldn't accept anything more than that um I don't think that there's so much a moral dilemma whenever it comes to imposing hard law regulation on corporate charity partnerships. I think that there could be an issue in enforcing 
hard law regulation. And so that's why we prefer to look at soft law regulation. If you've got hard law regulation, then really um, punitively, you're looking at fines and you're saying, well, what good what good is there in fining a corporation? And certainly what good is there in fining a charity if they've in some way overstepped or gone outside of the regulation? And then you're looking at the practical side of it, of actually policing the hard law regulation. Um, I think that, I think with everything, maybe it's looking at the context of specific situations. Certainly with um, cause-related marketing campaigns like breast cancer, I would not be an advocate of hard law regulation there. Um, my breastfeeding research is in its infancy, but at this stage, I would say that that would be an area where I would look at imposing hard law regulation. So you say to a company like Heinz Craft or you say to a company like Nestle or Danone, you know what, if you go into a developing economy and you are essentially bribing healthcare workers to hand out literature, which is making these women think that if they buy your formula, that their children are going to be more intelligent and therefore be able to lift themselves out of poverty. And you're pushing this and you're making this woman um, take this formula. So to rewind back a little bit, this um, this this woman will go into hospital to have to have her baby and the midwives will be giving this literature out that advocates this particular formula that, you know, it looks very medical and scientific. And if you feed the baby using this formula, they're going to be um, very intelligent and, you know, maybe very athletic, et cetera, et cetera. And scientific studies show X, Y, Z. And then whenever they go into hospital, they're given a couple of big fat tins of formula um, that they can take home and feed their baby. And so these women go back, you know, oftentimes to essentially tin shacks and they've got their two cans of formula and they make up the formula for the baby. Now, meanwhile, from a biological point of view, their breast milk is drying up. So they're making the the formula milk for the baby. Um, but then as time goes on, um, this free formula runs out. And then they realise that they can't afford to buy the formula. So, for example, in the Save the Children report called Don't Push It, um, there was a particular case study. Um, so, say, for, for example, um, a woman in the Philippines. And for her to continue to buy that formula, it would have cost her two-thirds of her monthly income. Now, she can't afford to pay two-thirds of her monthly income formula for her baby so what does she do she, she and her breast milk has now dried up she has to feed her baby somehow so she starts to dilute the formula down and weaken the formula she's also living in a tin shack with no electricity so she can't sterilize the bottles she doesn't have access to the sterilization equipment that that we would be used to here so now this baby is suffering a double hit because it's getting weakened in watered formula and it's also getting it in not sterile bottles. So this baby is going to become sick and potentially this baby could die. Now, you have this action by these companies, and it's not just one company, it's all six of the main um, 
formula companies. This is this is their action. This is how they're acting on the ground in these com- in in these um, countries. But then on their shiny, glossy websites that we are reading, they're talking about how they're saving children and they're going to make the world a better place. And so where where I would come in and say, this is where hard law regulation has a place. Because if you do that, if we find that um, that you are doing that you are doing this, if we have proof of that, then we don't want to just say, you know, naughty Nestle, you're not sticking to the goddamn code again. You've broken the code again. You know, you want to bring in much, much higher sanctions. So I think that um, that that's that that is a place where hard law regulation can come in. However, policing that at a global level doesn't come without Yes, because obviously we're talking about multinational corporations and that was going to lead me on to another question specifically on that, um, of whether the impetus is on us in the more developed world um, to impose these sanctions on the um, on the corporations who obviously most of which would sit in the more developed world, um, their office and their bureaucratic mm. structures would be in the more developed world and there'll be financial reporting in the more developed mm-hmm. world as well. Yep. Or is the impetus on the developing world and that side of it, perhaps their governments coming together um, on the international stage or who who needs to push that effort um, to rein those corporations in? Everybody. <laughs> um, they, to be fair, there is... A lot. I mean, it's too complex an issue to say that there's nothing out there. There are lots of different, I mean, there are hard law regulations in most countries governing the sale of breast milk substitute formula. It's about how do we actually police this, govern it and make it work. Um, I think everybody um, has a role to play whenever it comes um, to actually enforcing the laws here. I think that the developing economies obviously need to make sure that they are putting into to practice the actual regulation that most of them have. For example, the Philippines, they do have regulation. They're governing the marketing and sale of, of breast milk formula. So um, I think that, that everybody has a role to play in terms of enforcing that. But to sidestep a little bit away um, from from what you're talking about in terms of who places it um, and to sort of bring it back to my area of research, which is cause-related marketing. That's um, that's sort of the road that I'm at at the minute where um, I'm saying that we know that there is that there is regulation out there. We know that the companies aren't adhering to it. So that's one area where we need to look and go, how do we make them um, keep to this and stick to this? But also, what what if we look at it through a slightly different lens or take a slightly different approach? And that's exactly what I'm looking at at the minute, where I'm saying, um, which I had brought up a, a few moments ago, where I'm saying that if a corporation, um, if their activities sit in contrast or conflict with any of their um, corporate social responsibility um, causes, then we just don't allow them to get involved anymore. So if you've got an MNC who um, are, who is engaging in activity which sits in conflict with, say, for example, their cause-related marketing campaign, then we ban them 
from that. So we say Nestle, for example, <laughs> going after Nestle again, we don't buy Kit Kats in our house. Um, but if if we we look um, at Nestle, you say, right, you know what, we're going to strip down this website that you have here. We're, we're not going to allow you to say on your website that you're going to help lead 50 million children uh, or you're going to help 50 million children lead healthier lives. We're not going to allow you to do that because we know that your activity at another level is is not um, complementary of this statement. And so that's where I'm going at the minute. Now, as I say, this research is kind of in its infancy, so I don't know exactly how we would police and monitor that, but that's where I'm going, that I don't want... I want to stop that tension with MNCs. I want to stop them being able to... Um, act in, in one way with us in in our more privileged countries and then act in a very different way whenever they're entering markets in less privileged um, areas. And do you think any part of that is a problem with the modern production line and globalised companies that perhaps um, this formula milk um, is being produced in the countries that it's, that, um, it's pushing on those women in, say, those um, less developed company, our countries? Um, so, for instance, you know, uh, it's being produced there and now being marketed there where traditionally it was being marketed here. So the whole paradigm has shifted and essentially where the West is now full of service workers and the people working in the offices of these large companies um, who aren't seeing at all what's going on in these less developed countries in terms of production and even now in terms of the marketing and the, the consumption of these goods? Well, Jay, where do you think is one of the biggest producers of infant formula? No idea. <laughs> the Republic of Ireland. Mm. So it's not to say that developing economies are the ones producing this. We've got a very, very developed economy producing it and and shipping it out to these company to these countries. In fact, there was um, somebody posted and it came up on my social media feed that wasn't a great because I think it was Monaghan was getting a factory that was going to produce even more formula and there were like 70 jobs or something that was that was going to come. So uh, kind of ironically, um, we are producing it, but we're then shipping it out. Now we're producing it, but... Um, our laws are very tightly monitored um, in terms of um, infant formula. Our laws are very tightly monitored here. So the Republic of Ireland um, are very, very, very good at producing this milk. They're also pretty good at, at consuming it because the Republic of Ireland have relatively low breast feeding figures. But... Um, they're working to change that, as is the UK. So even though the Republic of Ireland are big on producing this infant formula, they're moving very swiftly and strongly into um, not allowing. So, for example, whenever as a woman you go into a hospital in the Republic of Ireland, um, a midwife isn't allowed to offer you formula. And some hospitals are moving um, very um, breastfeeding friendly um, where, you're, where the hospital don't give new mothers formula at all. So if you want to formula feed your baby, you have to bring your own formula in. So it's a really, really interesting 
point that, that you yeah. said there. And I wouldn't expect you to know who produces um, infant formula. But, you know, so it's a really, really interesting point yeah, that you made. But yeah. It's quite fascinating because obviously the traditional picture would be that the exploitation yeah. happens at the production end yeah. of the of the production chain, if you like. Mm-hmm. And it the is, consumer yeah. end is traditionally viewed as these Western wealthier countries where consumers yeah. are given this sanitized image of how their product got to them. But essentially you're saying that the produ- the production end's not exploitative at all because it's happening in developed countries, but it's the consumer end that the exploitation is occurring on, not not in maybe the developed countries, but definitely in the instance there, have you said about the, Vil- the Philippines, that there is exploitation yeah. happening to actual consumers mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that... You know, um, it's being allowed to happen there, but essentially not happening here. No, not to the same degree. I mean, it yeah. does happen here. Um, the next time that you're you're watching TV and you'll see an ad where you've got a, a baby and it's got lovely piano music in the background and this cute little baby's crawling up a sofa, I think, and then they're crawling up a mountain and it's, you know, um, it shows the baby... Um, feeding at the breast but then at six months um you know it's to move on from the breast and it's it's to move on to this follow-on milk and the reason that we have these ads is because um in the uk and in the republic of ireland they're not allowed to um promote the sale of newborn infant formula they can only sell it they can only advertise it from aged six months on and so this is why so many women think that at six months they need to stop breastfeeding it's like geez i need to get the child weaned and get them onto this follow-on milk because they see it they see it advertised on tv so there's still exploitation there because there's no reason to um there's no reason to wean your child at six months um so there's still exploitation there um it's just not the same degree as we have it in countries where it's maybe not monitored or not regulated just as as tightly. And we talked obviously about um, Twitter policing and mm-hmm. um, social media campaigns to raise awareness about these issues that are popping up. What can our listeners do, um, you know, to in some way uh, help or lead some kind of impact um uh, in this, and particularly um, this sort of exploitation of women, what could our listeners do? Um? Okay, um, yes. I, the reason that I was was, was laughing there is just um, reminding myself that I'm a corporate lawyer, and um, I need to just check that I'm not going to get sued by Nestle for <laughs> some of my, my comments today. But I'm factually correct in everything I'm saying. But yeah, so whenever you're saying what can our listeners do, I was just I'm just reining myself in there um, a little bit. So what can um, your listeners do? I suppose be more savvy and be more aware whenever you are buying produce and you're buying products and you see a little pink ribbon or indeed a ribbon of any colour or any sort of emblem, have a look and see exactly what the corporation are giving here. So if they say we're donating um, a pound for every, I don't know, can of beans that you buy, we're going to donate, well, a pound is a lot, we're going to donate 10p for every can of beans that you buy, um, have a look at the small print. And is that topped at a £1,000? Because if it's topped at a thousand pound, that means that once that quota is reached, 
you're buying this particular can of beans because you think that you're giving 10p to save koala bears or something. Maybe not koala bears, they're probably not at risk. But you're, you know, you're going to support some cause. Um, but you need to have a look and see exactly what what that limit is and call them out. You know, companies don't like to be publicly shamed. So if you see this, then, you know, fire off a tweet and say, hey, um, I don't want to go back to Nestle, say, hey, you know, Tesco or Heinz or whoever, you know, how much are you giving or, you know, check them out, check it out publicly. Um, just so be aware and be savvy whenever it comes to um, to cause related marketing campaigns. If it's a good campaign, then yeah, support it because there are some excellent um, campaigns out there. With the um, the infant milk, um, that's I suppose a different ball game, maybe, and that's something that needs to be taken really seriously. So we need to be aware um, with the companies who produce and sell infant milk products, um, we need to be more aware of their activity and um, push for better regulation. Um, and yeah, just be aware of, of the products that they sell. All right. Thank you very much, Claire Patton, for joining me today. Thanks, Jay. And thank you very much all for listening. And if you'd like to find out um, anything more about Claire's research or about the topic more generally, uh, you can check out the show notes. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. The show was produced by me, Jay Burbank, Aaron Colhoun, Douglas Goh, Shock Yan Lee. The theme tune was produced by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at QUB LawPod. You can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Jay Burbank and this has been LawPod. <laughs>